Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Are you ready for the message? Did you come ready today? I'm telling you, God wants to deposit something into your life that will bless you, transform you, free you, but you got to be ready to receive it. I was very clear that hard hearts and and ears that are turned off, you're not going to be able to receive what God has for you. So I'm just asking you, turn up the volume a little bit, get your spirit ready, because I think God's got a word for us today in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, are you ready for the message? Okay, here's the deal. Um, We've been in this series for a long time. I thought it was going to be like a six-week series, and it just keeps going and going. Uh, I believe we're done next week. I believe I'm finishing up next week. No promises, but we'll see what happens. Um, And it's a very simple um, thought what this series is, is we want to be a church that pleases God. And there's this easy temptation culture to build a church that man loves instead of what God loves. And we're going to build a church that God loves, and when we do that, everybody benefits. Amen? Amen. So today's message is how a church that builds and battles, a church that builds and battles. It really is a revival message, to be honest. I love revival. And if you cut me to my core, I'm a revivalist. And all revival means is returning to God. I'm all about people returning to God. And so I believe the Bay Area is going to see revival. And so um, let's look at what the Bible says in Matthew 16. Here we go. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Oh, I better give you context. Got kind of excited. Um, So uh, Jesus is on the scene. It's one of the more famous texts in all the Bible, um, and if you've heard it a thousand times, just, just know the Bible's alive and active. You might hear some today that you've never heard before in the thousand and one time. Uh, that's why I love the word. I, I've read it over and over again, and God always has something fresh. So in this story, Matthew 16, Jesus is asking him, uh, who are people saying I am? And uh, it's an amazing moment, because once you actually know who Jesus is, it changes your life forever. It will change your assignment forever. It will change your purpose forever and your fulfillment forever. And so I pray that you know the answer to this question. So he asked uh, his disciples, and uh, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Everybody say church. church. That's the Greek word, ekklesia. It is a government word. He's saying, I'm going to establish my government, the kingdom of God, through you and through the people of God. Can I just tell you real quick, a crowd does not make a church. A program does not make a church. Just like a pile of wood does not make a house, a pile of rocks does not make a wall, and a pile of glass make a window. No, an assembly of believers that actually come together. The word ecclesia literally means um, city uh, uh, officials assembling together for a common purpose. And so church gets really good when you don't have a crowd, but when you assemble the saints to worship and pray and fast. Come on now, that's what we just did this week. We assemble the saints. Church gets really good when you assemble the laborers to do the work of the ministry. Church gets really good when you assemble the soldiers to go battle the gates of hell and to pray and intercede for the Bay Area. Amen? And so we're not trying to build a crowd here. We're trying to assemble the saints. Come on now, we're trying to build a crowd. We're trying to assemble soldiers today. And so if that's a little intense for you, I just want you to know something real quick. You're at battle. You may not know it, but the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm not trying to fluff it. I'm going to let you know you need to know how to fight. Amen? Amen. So um, I'll be honest. When we plan the church, I've been praying a billionaire in since day one. God, send them. The per capita, we got a lot in the Bay Area. I remember we got an email a year, like, uh, I was like probably... 15 months in, and uh, Mark Benioff uh, emailed us. Um, not Mark Benioff Salesforce, which I thought it was him. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh. 
The guy with the billionaire from Salesforce emailed our church, and we're like a baby church. Like, how did you find our email? Now this is another guy named Mark Benioff. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine showing up to reservations with that name? You know what I'm saying? Um, and so. Uh, but I always was praying, like, God, would you send a billionaire, and he could just write one check, and we could buy our church building, and we don't have to worry about it, and, and, uh, and then we can also plant campuses. And the more and more I've gone on this journey, when you pray for great things to happen, sometimes God doesn't send you, you know, let me put it this way, a billionaire. He sends you over 1,000 people. And the reality is, is if one person would have wrote a check, none of us would have sacrificed to build where we're at right now. None of us would have showed up to do anything we were supposed to do. And I think sometimes God goes, and time out though, I just want to say something. If you are a billionaire in the house, we will, we will, we will receive. We will receive. If you are the billionaire, could you just stand up real quick? Someone say, welcome. You're part of the family. Come on now. Uh, let's get back to this though. Okay, but, but if God does not have anybody write the check uh, to build the building, I think there's something so special about when the church comes together and builds together assembles together, that, that we don't contract out our calling, that we, don't, we, that we don't just sit here lazy and nominate something else, somebody else to do the work that God's called us to do. It's not a question if you're supposed to change the world. You're called to change the world. That's why you're on this planet. And so we're going to look at uh, a story in the Bible today uh, from Nehemiah, and it's a beautiful story of a man who just understood why he was alive. And when you understand why you're alive, you're going to do way more with your life than you ever thought you could. Are you ready? Bow your heads. God, we thank you. Oh, we give you this message. We give you this time. God, 845, you got an assignment for this moment. We say yes to your plan, yes to, to what you have planned. So God, we just get ready to receive from you. God, I pray right now, my words will fall to the floor and your words will soar. I come against apathy. I come against tiredness. I come against distraction right now. God, we want to hear from the one that sits on the throne, the one that could transform our lives. So God, would you speak today? Oh, God, would you speak? I pray I get out of the way. Oh, this is your word. It is alive and active. So cut, shape, set us free. We want you. We want you. Anybody said? All right. If we want to be a church that builds and battles, the first thing that we need as a church is we need a church that has somebody who will believe that he could do it again. So our first point is simply this is a man who believed he could do it again. Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite missionaries. Uh, in the late 1800s, went to China, uh, one of the hardest places to, um, you know, evangelize and build the church. He's credited with 35,000 um, baptisms and 50,000 salvations. It's an amazing thing. And here's what he said about when God calls you to a great work to build something. There are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Last stage, then it's done. You may say it's impossible right now to have a great marriage. Trust me, it is not impossible to have a great marriage. You may say it's impossible to raise my family and my kids and have them actually live the way of God in this type of culture. No, it is not impossible. It may be difficult, but then it will get done. Amen? And so those are the three stages. And I want us to see actually those three stages come to place in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah 1 starts out with this. In late autumn in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. I just love people who um, care enough just to ask. Yeah. We're a caring church, by the way. Uh, disciples are supposed to care, so we care enough to ask, but we don't only care enough to ask, we care enough to listen, then we care enough to pray, and then we care enough to act. And so, so, so Nehemiah cares enough just to ask, how's it going? And I love, I love people who give real answers, you know what I'm saying? Uh, this person was a little too real, but they said, they said to me, things are not going well. Come on, today, if you are somebody who walked into church today, and if I were sitting down uh, across from you, we were having coffee, and I said, how are things going in this season? And if you were being completely honest, if you're the person in the room saying, things are not going well, 
you came to the right Sunday. You came to the right church. If you've been in, a, in, in maybe a long season of things not going well, you came to the right place. Because we have a God and we have a church that is built for things when they're not going well to turn the tide. Amen? So... He goes, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. It's interesting. Why is he putting the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down? Uh, back in those uh, days, in the 5th century B.C., uh, you, um, if you didn't have a wall, you didn't have an identity as a city, you didn't have provision as a city, you didn't have protection as a city, it made you a legit city if you had a wall. So if your wall was torn down, the enemy could exploit you, manipulate you, destroy you, you were always vulnerable to the enemy. Now, we don't build walls uh, anymore uh, in cities to uh, make them great. What we do in our in cities, we build churches. So the new wall is the church. So when the church is torn down, the city is actually going to be the one that's messed up. But when the church gets built right, the city, it says, gets better and brighter. So let's build a great church. Amen. And so I go and say, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Mourned, fasted and prayed. Unbeknownst to Nehemiah, this one moment of him praying and fasting would put him in the Bible with the greats, David, Abraham, Moses, a man who decided, one person who decided, I'm going to pray and fast and see what happens. They literally stepped into a calling. He had no idea at this moment that he was going to step into a calling that he'd be one of the greatest Bible stories ever preached, one of the greatest Bible stories ever read, one of the greatest Bible characters ever to live. And it all started because somebody prayed and fasted and wept. As he prayed and fasted, he starts to pray. I'll just read a little bit. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for people of Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family uh, and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you have given us through your servant Moses. And here's where he's reminding himself and even reminding God. I love he's reminding God like God needs reminded. Uh, Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even you who are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. He's saying, God, I'm believing you could do it again. The word return, he's saying, I believe you can revive us again. I believe you can return us to our purpose, return us to joy again, return us to peace again, return us to fulfillment again. You're the one who can revive us to those things. He he reminds himself and reminds the Lord. Now, I read that and, you know, you're like, well, that's Nehemiah. Like, of course, I mean, like, like, I read the Bible. It's so easy for us to, like, have faith for, like, Bible times, but, like, it's hard to have faith for, like, now. Like, 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 well, like what Nehemiah was walking around well in the creek today, you know, like what he'd be like, he prayed and wept and fast. And he's like, please remember what you said to Moses, you know, like, what does it look like today? What I want to do in this next moment is I want to share three stories in history, uh, 1800s and 1900s, uh, the 1900s, sounds weird to say the 1900s, uh, the late 1900s. I live in the late 1900s before electric cars. Um, but anyways, that's like the 1990s. Um, um, I digress. Um, what I want to do is I want to actually just, I want to do some teaching. I want to get some history uh, context of God reviving different regions and different times. Um, because what revival really represents, especially when uh, historians study it, basically if I could encapsulate one of the, the, the symptoms of revival is God does something in days that would take men decades or years or centuries. God does with a breath what would take men and women their whole lifetime to achieve. If you know the story of Nehemiah, I'll ruin the ending for it. I'm just going to go for it. Uh, uh, they start to build the wall. And they build the wall eight feet thick, 40 feet high in 52 days. 
the government can't even do that today with all the machinery they have. Come on now. Think about that real quick. Like, like when God's people get unified and they assemble, they do things they can never do with the grace of God. So, so I want to show you uh, three things that were built by the breath of God throughout history, and I want to see if we can actually believe that he would do it again. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, the first one uh, is uh, on September 23rd, 1857, somebody put up a sign in New York City on Fulton Street. Here's what the sign said. Daily prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop by. Five minutes, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, or the whole hour, as your time admits. Jeremiah Lamphier was this young man who was a businessman in New York City and decided for his um, lunch break he would pray for the hour, and he put a sign up. And for the first 30 minutes, he was by himself in a little room that he used for the prayer uh, time. And then at 30 minutes, a gentleman came in. And by the end of that prayer time, they had six people. And they said, this was nice. We should do it again next week. And so those six people showed up the next week and 12 people showed up the following week. And they were like, you know what? This was nice. We should do it again next week. Those 12 turned to 20 people the following week. Within months, 5,000 workers, businessmen, and women were showing up at lunchtime and praying for New York City and the nation to have a revival. Can I just tell you what happened real quick? Millions got saved, and it's one of the great awakenings. There was only two million people actually in New York City, and a million got saved. You do the math. Oh, you want to know one of the greatest things about the revival? The New York Times wrote about it. What? Okay, let me read you a part from the New York Times. New York Times, exactly, right? Okay, um, uh, said this in 1858. The great waves of religious excitement, which is now sweeping over this nation, nation, is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. Travelers relate, uh, relate that, uh, they're in cars, steamboats, and banks, markets. Everywhere through the interior, this matter is an absorbing topic. Churches are crowded. Schoolhouses are turned into chapels. Converts are numbered by the scores of thousands in each city. We have beheld a sight which not the most enthusiastic fanatic for church observant could ever had hoped for to look upon. You, you're believing for great things? Just, just let that story It's going to be greater. You're believing for great revival in the Bay Area? It's going to be even greater. We have seen in a business quarter of the city in the busiest hours, the busiest hours, the hours that no man would give to God, the assembled of merchants and clerks and working men to the number of 5,000 gathered day after day, this thing turned into daily, for a simple and solemn worship, a time of prayer. It is the most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifty of thousands of men and women are putting themselves at this time in a simple and serious way. The greatest question that can ever come before a human mind, what shall we do to be saved from sin? Is that the New York Times? Is that a preacher talking right now? All started with one man, Jeremiah Lamphere said, what if I prayed? Can I just tell you real quick? We pray every week on Wednesdays, 9.30 to 10.30. I want to invite you to come on out. We're just thinking, what if we prayed? What if we gathered some believers to pray? What if we gathered some believers to fast? What if we actually knocked on the door of heaven and said, God, would you pour your presence again? So you're like, okay, yeah, that happened in 1858, after Nehemiah. Well, come on, let's fast forward to the 1940s. Let's fast forward to the 1940s. So in the 1940s, the Hebride Islands uh, record one of the coolest revivals you'll ever hear of. Uh, it's called the Hebride Revival. Two ladies in their 80s, uh, they were sisters, 80 and 82 years old. Uh, they cling to this promise in Isaiah 44.3. Isaiah 44.3 is this uh, verse, and it's a promise from God that said he would pour out his waters on dry land, and he poured his spirit on the descendants and every generation. And so they had nobody in their church under the age of 40. Young people in this part of Scotland had walked away from their faith. None of the churches had young people in them. And so these two older ladies started praying for revival. 
They started praying, God, we, we believe your promise of Isaiah 44, that you'll pour out your spirit on dry land, that you'll pour out your living water on dry land. They were praying and praying, and then one of the sisters had a vision, and she saw the revival happening. And she got so excited, she goes to her pastor, and she said, hey, we're about to have a revival. Um, get ready. The pastor was so stirred up that he joined them with prayer for this revival. One month they prayed for it, nothing. Two months they prayed for it, nothing. The third month, nothing. But the third month and the first day, something happened. Something broke. This, this missionary that came over during this time, uh, his name was Duncan. He walked into this church and just felt the presence of God, fell on his face. He was a young man, uh, ended up getting saved, confessed his sin. And during that time, for three years, it's one of the, the, the most beautiful revivals you'll ever see. Um, the presence of God did not only just rest on the churches, it rested on the whole island, all three islands, like where people were like riding their buggies and their horses and just out of the blue, they would feel conviction of sin and start weeping and get saved. Um, uh, it, there were boats that literally would go SOS uh, that were literally like just bunch of sailors on a boat, bunch of people on a boat. And as they're on the boat, the presence of God literally would sweep over the boat. People would start weeping and repenting. And so they started an SOS island. SOS, get pastors ready. There's a ton of converts on the boat. This is, this is, this is, this is a revival that uh, lasted for three years. And the reason why it ended in three years is uh, revivalists and historians say because it was called a burned out religion, a.k.a. everybody who was going to be saved in these three islands were saved. 75% of the population was saved. 25%, they were hard-hearted. They never wanted to say yes to Jesus. One of those, by the way, one of the greatest um, obstacles of this revival was actually another church. The, the religious people didn't like the revival. It was a Calvinist church that thought the revival was not Calvinistic enough. The revival swept right over that church. They never experienced it. Can I read you what one of the pastors said about this revival? Uh, I, love, I love how you described it. Um, I saw a sight I never thought was possible, something I shall never forget. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere, by the roadside, outside the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy upon them. Now, you're like reading that like by the cottages, the peat stacks. What's he, what's he saying? He's saying he, after he left church and he went to downtown Walnut Creek, he said, I, I saw something I never thought I'd see. I walk into Apple and people are weeping and crying and repenting and getting saved in Apple. Then I go get my Starbucks and I'm like, nah, I don't want Starbucks. I'm going to Rooted. And so uh, I go over to Rooted and I get me some Rooted coffee. And while I'm in Rooted coffee, somebody's weeping and repenting and getting saved. You know, I want to go see a movie this week. There's no good movies out anymore, but if there was a good movie, I'd go to the movie theater. And so I'm going to go see a good movie. And you walk in the movie theater and people are weeping and repenting. And you leave the movie theater and you go over to Nordstrom's to go get yourself some Viore because that's my favorite type of clothes. Anyways, um, and you go get some Viore or some Lulu. And when you walk into Lulu, people are weeping and repenting. This is what happened in the Hebrides Islands. He said, I never thought I'd see something like this. But when God wants to breathe on something, he can do something men could never accomplish. You're saying, okay, that, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it, we get it, we get it. Okay, okay, uh, you, you had um, uh, those two revivals, but, but, but um, what about like, like recently? Is there anything recently? Well, in 1966, in America, the rise of secularism was massive. It was the sexual revolution. The rise of atheism was massive, experimenting drugs. There was racial riots. There was tension. Division was at an all-time high in our nation. It was so bad in our nation, and atheism was so high, that Time Magazine had a um, front-page article, and this is what they titled it in 1966, Is God Dead? It was a time where people were walking away from faith and trying anything and everything but God. And so Time Magazine said, 
Is church done? Is God dead? Well, here's what happens in that moment. The nation started getting shook in every way. If you were here a few weeks, I talked about, I believe we're going through a shaking right now, even as a nation. I, I started saying this like, oh my gosh, Lord, I think you're, you're doing this again. So God was shaking things. So everything that could be shook would be shook, but the things that could not be shaken would still stand. And so ideologies are being shook. Politics are being shook. Um, um, the, 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 the hippie movement of, of free love and free sex and experimenting, everything that they thought would give them joy, actually, after a few years, all of them were depressed and wanted something else because all those things were disappearing, and they realized there was only one thing that could fulfill them, and his name was Jesus. Now, there was this pastor named Chuck Smith, very famous, and there's a movie out, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, they did a movie about this with Chuck Smith. Uh, a bunch of hippies started showing up to Chuck Smith's church in Southern California. And again, so sad. Let's listen. There's never be this church, but um, the hippies started showing up, getting saved. And the people who are part of that church, like the members of the church, were complaining to Chuck Smith. These people stink. They don't shower, and they don't even wear shoes. I can't even focus on your message because when they sit next to me, they got bare feet and they're dirty and they smell. Can you send them somewhere else? How grieving is that? How? Can I just tell you quick? If we're gonna build a great church, it's gonna be messy. It's not going to be perfect. We're gonna, just, and just let me know. I know you're messy. I'm messy. You just know how to take a shower and do your hair before church. Okay, that's, that's the only difference between us and the hippies in the Jesus Resolution. We, we know how to put our shoes on, I guess. And so, so Chuck Smith, um, uh, here's what they say. And what he decides to do is the following Sunday is he sits out front of his church and gets a basin and a rag and washes the hippies' feet as they come in. And... After this moment, of course, you know, they, they, there's an explosion. God's sweeping through the nation. People are getting saved and walking to church and weeping. And uh, they have one of the, the, the biggest and greatest baptisms ever in our nation. Uh, almost 5,000 people in Pirate's Cove in Southern California get baptized. And here's a picture of it. And you see them all raising their, their hand up with the one, right? That one literally is, was the hippie's mantra when they got saved. There's only one way to live. There's only one God. He is the way, the truth, the life. They would throw the one up and say, that is my God. Now, in 1966, Time Magazine had a magazine that said, is God dead? Well, in 1972, Time Magazine had to run another one, and this is what they put on the front. The Jesus Revolution. Can I just ask you, can I just ask you this question real quick? Hebrides Island. The spirit all over the, the region. People are getting saved in Starbucks, Apple, everywhere. Let's put it that way. Uh, our nation right now, it looks like the church is declining, and is, it, is this thing over? Do you believe you can do it again? Yes. Because it's going to take a person, like a Jeremiah Lamphere, like a Nehemiah, like the two 80. By the way, uh, I'm calling all 80-year-olds to team prayer on Wednesdays, okay? You better get in here. I want that anointing, whatever that is. We want, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm calling all of them in. Come on now. Um, uh, two women praying at the age of 80. God's shaking things. People being ready to serve and wash people's feet. We have to be that type of church that believes he can do it again. Amen? Yes. All right. So do you believe it? Yes. Okay, four people. Do you believe it? Yes. Okay, good, because now you're saying yes to the second part. Okay, good, okay, good. Because um, you believe it, then you're going to have to be a group willing to fight for it. Second thing you need to do to build something great is a group of people willing to fight. So Nehemiah 4 says this, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. Sanballat was the ruling authority in this region, if you will. And he was angry that the Jewish people were rebuilding the wall. Why? Because he loved exploiting, manipulating, and controlling the people when they were vulnerable. Can I just tell you, the enemy's not mad when you attend church. He's mad when you start building relationships in church. 
He's mad when you start building holy habits that you learn in church. He's mad when you start building healthy disciplines, when you start building altars to the Lord. When you start actually building the life God called you to build, I'm just going to give you a heads up, you're going to start actually facing some adversity. Because when a great door opens, there is going to be some adversary on the way. But if you will just say no to the enemy, I love one of the moments in Nehemiah, I don't uh, have the scripture with me today, but it's where um, uh, the enemy is trying to get Nehemiah to come down from building. And Nehemiah says, sorry, I don't have time to talk to you right now. I'm too busy building what God called me to build. Can I just tell you real quick, when the enemy whispers to you that you're not good enough, when the enemy whispers to you another lie, can you just tell the enemy, sorry, I'm busy right now building the life God called me to build. Come on, stay focused on what God called you to build. So uh, they go on, uh, and he says those things, you know, Sam Ballot, worst name in the Bible, uh, in the presence of his associates, and if your name is Sam Ballot, we'll change it for you today. You are now Peter. Okay. Um, in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Why they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they uh, uh, finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, uh, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down uh, their wall of stones. I, look at that. Can I tell you, when you start to build, even when you come to church, the enemy's going to try to just diminish it. What? You shouldn't go to small group. They don't want you a small group. Nobody wants to see you at church. I mean, just little things like, oh, it's not a big deal. You can just do this. Like, he'll try to minimize the greatest decisions of your life. And so here's what... Um, uh, Nehemiah says, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with swords and spears and bows. I love what Nehemiah did. He posted people to fight. Wednesday, I don't know if I told you this, but we have a Wednesday prayer thing at 930 to 1030. And uh, we feel like we are the intercessors for a whole church and for this region. We put on our spiritual hard hats and we pray with our spears and bows and swords that God would protect your families. He would bless your kids. He would bless the schools. He would bless the city. Yeah, we're doing the same thing. Amen. Okay. After I, uh, after I looked the, these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And I feel like this is a prophetic verse right now for our church. He goes on to say, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Can I just tell you real quick, Mission Church, we got to fight for our city, our families, our wives, our daughters, our sons, our homes. We're going to fight. Amen? Amen? So he says, hey, if you're going to build, you got to fight. Now, I want to show you actually the nine ways the enemy tried uh, to stop uh, God's people from building. There's nine tactics that they used in Nehemiah. And I think that the enemy uses the same tactics today because they weren't people actually trying to stop the Jewish people. I think they're actually principalities. There were spirits behind it. And so the first one is just ridicule. And I, just, I talked about that. He's just going to try to ridicule you. It's stupid to show up to prayer. Uh, you don't know how to pray. Why would you even try to pray? Don't pray out loud. He'll just try to ridicule you to shut you up. Second thing the enemy tries to do, he tries to attack the leader. We have over 100 people leading small groups at our church. When you say yes to leading a small group, you say yes to picking a fight with the enemy. Because every leader at our church, I want you to know something real quick, he's trying to take you out. Trying to say, don't lead anymore. Don't serve anymore. And the reality is if you can take out the leader, then the sheep scatter. If you're a leader, I want to encourage you, keep fighting, keep battling. It is worth the fight. Come on. Um, it's funny, even the way they try to take out leaders, uh, even in church, I feel like, God would just, you know, uh, we'll give you the, the strength, but then we'll try to send somebody in your group and just say all the words that you've never wanted to hear from somebody. It's like, how did you know that's the, the one thing that would make me feel the most insecure? D don't let the weakest person in your group create weakness in you. Come on. Come on. Don't let the weakest person in the house cut you. Come on. Just the way God likes to use people, the enemy likes to use people. Our house, God's using people. We're not going to enemy use people. Amen? Okay. Um, Compromise. One foot in, one foot out. Try to sell them, hey, you don't have to do it this fast. You don't have to be this committed. Just, just a little bit. One foot in, one foot out. That's another way they may try to have you stop building the life God calls you to build. Slander. 
Oh, try to try to have you um, uh, slander people or have you get slandered so you wouldn't want to be around anybody more. Can I just tell you, assumptions are the termites of the church. Right. It's where it just eats away at the fabric of what God's trying to build. Slander is, is the termites of the church. We're not going to slander people. We're going to encourage them. We're going to stir them up. Amen? Another one is threats. Uh, the image is try to threat, uh, uh, create threats. If you start living this way, you're going to lose something you actually care about. The reality is if you start living this way, you're going to get everything your heart's always desired. Uh, the enemy's a, a liar, intrigued to do something else. The enemy's just going to try to sell you something else. I don't know about you, but during COVID, man, the enemy was selling a lot of intrigue to go move somewhere else, do something else, try something else, leave somewhere else. But we st- we're staying and we're building the Bay Area. Another one is discouragement. I talked about that earlier. And last but not least is fear. Fear will paralyze you. It's just, he'll try to get you in a mindset of rhythm of always thinking worst case scenario instead of actually faith that God actually is going to keep his promises. We're a faith-filled church. We're not a fear-filled church. 2 Corinthians 11 says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. As you build, these are going to be things that you're going to encounter. Rachel and I went all through all these nine uh, the other day, and we're like, yep, that was year one. Yep, that was year two. Yep, that was year three. Yep, that was yesterday. Oh, that's right now. Okay, I mean, like, those schemes, that means you're going to keep shooting shooting arrows. You better be ready to fight the battle. So if you're willing to fight the battle, uh, you're going to win the battle. So after you build and after you battle, you need to get ready for revival. So the the wall gets built in Nehemiah 6. In Nehemiah 8, they start assembling. And here's what happens in Nehemiah 8. All the people assembled with unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. Uh, They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. Stop. I love this part. Check this out. Uh, Revival's happening. They're now awakened to why they're alive. And revival happens, guess what happens? People want to actually hear the word of God read to them. They're literally chanting, bring out the book, bring out the book. Can you imagine you coming to church like on a Sunday and people are like, bring out the book, bring out the book. And I'm like, I'm going to come out and you're like, yeah, he brought out the book. Like that's what's happening. And they build a platform and say, bring out the book. Because revival always leads to reformation. Like, what you doing trying to use words like that? If you can learn Starbucks words, you're going to learn the biblical words, okay? So, 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 so Reformation, all, this, all that, here, let me just unpack this real quick. Let me do some teaching. Revival is returning to the Spirit of God. Reformation is, is uh, returning to the Word of God. And, and for you to have the Spirit of God and the presence of God, you need the Word of God. Because the truth of God is actually a spirit. So, so, so they're literally saying, bring out the book. And as they bring out the book... He gets on a platform. Let me read to you right here. Uh, um, he goes, so on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So, I, you know, just because I'm a preacher, I did the math real quick. Morning till noon, that's a six-hour sermon. This 45-minute message, you better relax. Okay, I got 14 minutes. We're 31 minutes in. If you're like, oh, what's going on? You want me to go Ezra on you? I'll go Ezra on you. I'll go full six hours. Okay, um, this is what this is the reality of the American church at times. I, I read all the stats. You know, Barna does studies. Um, a, a stream I'm part of Arc gives us studies and stats. Um, if you do everything right as a church, and somebody goes, boom, I'm coming mission track. This is my church. The average Christian will attend church 1.7 times per month. 1.7 times per month. That's the, that's the average person goes, like, they go, oh, what, what church do you go to? Mission Church? Awesome. Haven't seen you in three weeks. I know, but I'm going to be there next week because that's my average. Like, like, that's the reality of an average Christian who attends church, okay? So, if we go 65, 70 minutes, I feel like the room feels great. I, I start hitting 75 minutes, 
So people start shaking a little bit, you know, like, like I'm like, hey, here's Joe for the announcements. And people just start beelining to the, uh, to the, the, to the door. Yes, we see you leave early, okay? Um, um, I, I don't know what you're sprinting to, um, but, but I just want to encourage you real quick. When you start to have revival, the thing that matters most starts to become the thing that redeems you most. The thing that matters most is the thing that saves you most. The thing that matters most is the thing that you actually realize, no, this is actually the thing that's going to, tra- why would I run from this? Why would I rush this? Why would I try to get out of this? It, it says that they actually built a platform for the word of God. I think I actually have the verse here. Let me see. Yeah, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for, uh, for the occasion. So why did they build the platform? It's not just because they wanted Ezra to stand high. They wanted to signify that the word of God was going to be their ultimate authority and above them. And, and if I could just give you a picture real quick, a lot of Christians right now do not have this kind of posture. They have this kind of posture. And they look at it and they feel like they're the authority. And they'll, they'll, they'll read it when they want to read it. And they'll listen to it when they want to listen to it. And they'll obey it when they want to obey it. Can I just tell you real quick, the Bible over and over again, you read the Bible, you'll see a lot. There is, there is no blessing in disobedience. The, the worst part of sin is not uh, that like, you know, like, oh no, you did something bad. The worst part of sin is that you're separating yourself from the presence of God. Is that you're actually walking away from the blessing of God. And so, so what they're trying to represent is that, that the, the word of God would actually be the ultimate authority. And when you stand under the authority of God, all the blessings of God start to rain down on your life. We understand the simplicity of how to shower and get under a shower head because that's where we actually get clean. But we don't understand the spiritual cleanliness of actually standing on the word of God and letting this get in you and on you and cleaning you from past shame, from past wounds, from past lies. When you start wash, washing yourself with the word of God, it will redeem you and restore you and cleanse your soul in a way the world can never do it. We're going to give an ultimate authority. So I like this part, this next part, uh, uh, when revival, so revival leads to reformation, but revival also leads to repentance and revival also leads to rejoicing. I'm going to show you uh, both these. So, um, Nehemiah eight, uh, they read the book of the law and God clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were inter, uh, uh, interpreting for the people said to them, do not mourn or weep such a day as this for today is a sacred day before the Lord, your God, for the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So they start feeling conviction. Oh, they start, they start weeping because they, they feel convicted. And can I say real quick, uh, I wrote this down. Uh, conviction is the emotion and repentance is the motion. Now, here's what I mean. Conviction is a great emotion. It just shows you I'm better than this. I'm, 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 I'm called to more. My, my identity is not this. My identity actually is saint. My identity is son and daughter. My identity is redeemed. And so you start weeping over the things that you used to say yes to. But the weeping uh, is remorseful, but, and that's good. But if remorse doesn't lead to repentance, it, 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 the, the emotion should get you into motion of repentance. Because... I, I didn't teach on this last night. I might teach. Sin is one of those things where until you walk away from it, it will always be in your life waiting to destroy you. Um, you ever watch those things like, I guess in the 60s and 70s or maybe the 40s, people could actually have a lion as a pet. Did you, have you ever seen those like dog, like people like, like, like they're like, oh, what do you got? I got a lion as a pet, you know, or like a tiger. And, and when they're like a little baby, um, like they're like, oh, it's so adorable. Look at this little lion, you know? Oh my gosh. Oh, he's getting so big. Oh, what's his name? His name's Mufasa, you know? Um, and I, I don't want to get dark or get sad on you, but then these lions grew, grew up and they started killing their owners. Like, literally, like, ripping the face off and destroying them and killing them. Okay? Like, sorry, I go, ugh, you know? Um, you want to know why? Because they're a lion. <laughs> it's, like, literally, like, in its DNA. Like, your food. You know, like, you know, like that's, like, like, the way they're, they're, they're not, like, they're not, like, hi, I'm a baby lion. No, they are 
killers. They're the king of the jungle. And so, so what happens sometimes with sin is we're like, oh, look at this sin. It's just this little sin. doesn't really bother me. Oh, it's never hurt me. Oh, look, it's just getting a little bigger in my life. Oh, it's getting a little bigger. And then, oh, it's got a little bigger until it's fully grown. And the Bible says when sin is fully grown, it creates death and it attacks you and it kills you. And so can I tell you real quick what repentance is is saying, hey, I ain't raising no sin in my life. I ain't raising no, hey, I don't care how cute it looks right now. I don't care how much pleasure it brings you right now. I am booty Mufasa out of my house, okay? And so revival leads to repentance, kicking the things out that are going to destroy you and create death in your life. And now, bye, bye Felicia. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, so then uh, Nehemiah 8 says this, and we'll, we'll, uh, um, we're almost there. Uh, Nehemiah, then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, of all the people enchanted, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their, um, with their fa- uh, faces to the ground. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with rich uh, uh, foods and sweet drinks and share of gifts. I love this. They praised the Lord. Uh, they chanted amen and amen. That was their worship song that day. Amen. Amen. And then they lifted their hands. Amen. Amen. Like, I mean, I, just, I, I wish I could go to a Nehemiah church service, okay, um, back then. So they started chanting amen and amen. So they started rejoicing. But if you read Nehemiah, it's so weird. Like, they're, they're, they're weeping, and then they're rejoicing. They're weeping, and then they're rejoicing. Because when you get saved, there's two realities you come to. That you are a great sinner, but he's a, a greater savior. That your sin is great, but he is greater. That your sin was big, but grace is greater. And so you weep over your sin, but then you rejoice over the grace. You weep over your sin, but then you rejoice over who saved you. And so he goes on, he goes, he goes hey, hey, okay, you, you wept over your sin, but now it's time for you to celebrate that you've been saved. Uh, and why are they weeping so much? Well, for 140 plus years, they lived in disgusting rebellion from God. Idol worship, the way they lived, disgusting rebellion. But in one day, they were restored to the love of God. 140 years of rebellion, and in one day, they were restored. I, I, um, uh, I got a approval from my uh, wife for this, uh, this illustration because um, it's about women shopping. And so uh, just, 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 just put the guns down, okay? Um, I, saw it, um, I saw it on social media. Uh, there's this like, the new little joke. It's called uh, hashtag girl math when they go shopping. Um, and uh, now, now, now just give you a heads up. This can be called hashtag spouse math also because I do this too with golf stuff. But, but this is the video I saw. I thought it was hilarious. So this, uh, this girl was shopping. And uh, she found these pants for $250. And so she uh, tried them on. She loved them. She goes, oh my gosh, they're $250. And so like the, the whole, you know, girl math process starts. And she goes, well, if I wear them 50 times, that's $5 a wear. That's like nothing. And then her friend's like, that's like just a coffee that you, uh, that you, 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 you would drink. And she goes, okay, here's what I'll do. Whenever I wear these pants, I won't drink coffee. So basically they're now free. And then it's like, hashtag girl math, you know? And, and uh, now... Don't get mad at me. My wife said it was okay. Um, you want to get mad, you get mad at Rachel. No, I'm kidding. No. Uh, I do the same thing for like golf clubs. Like, well, if I use this golf club for five years, it's basically like they're paying me to use it. Anyways, okay. Um, so um, I don't understand girl math, but I understand God math. And God math is this amazing thing. Because how in the world can you rebel for 140 years and mock God, rebel from God? And then in one day, be restored and be everything God is calling you to be. How does that happen? It's called God math. His name is Jesus. He is the equation. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He's the one that restores. So I want to build a great church with you. I want to build a church where people come in and they're restored and they're saved. But I think... For us to build a great church, I think we have to have clarity on what we're trying to build. When Jesus declares, I will build my church, 
He is already saying, I'm the architect. You are not the architect. Don't bring your own plans in. Okay, like, oh, you know what would look good in this place? Yeah, a little bit more, a, little more, a, a disco ball, you know, or, or, or you know, less worship and uh, more uh, funny videos. That would be a good part of church. No, 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 we don't bring our architecture in. We actually say yes that way. He, uh, he designed to build it. And so I'm going to show you what I believe Scripture shows us. Um, and I, you read Ephesians, there's three purposes of the church. Worship God, equip the saints, and evangelize to a lost world. Okay, that's literally through Ephesians. Like, it shows you actually what the purpose of the church is. Um, can I get my, my, my Legos? Um, actually, they're not my Legos. They're, they're Stephen's son's Legos. I borrowed them. Um, now, um, when, I, when I think of church, there's, there's three parts of church that you should honor. Uh, so the first one is um, uh, a doctrinal church. So in America, there actually are streams of churches that are um, these type of churches. So the first one would uh, bring up the rings. The first one says uh, Reformed. Uh, Ref- yeah, there we go. So the first stream would be the Reformed movement. The Reformed movement, the doctrine, uh, you call them the doctrinal churches. Uh, they're kind of famous for like, they exposit the text. Uh, they do what we call uh, doctrinal preaching or expository preaching. Uh, and what I mean by that is they go verse by verse by verse by verse. Uh, even though the Bible doesn't tell you that's how you're supposed to do it, they think that's the only way you can do it. Um, and um, so they have some great strengths, though. They hold truth at the highest regard. And if we don't disciple people, the world will. And if they don't get truth from the church, they will fall deceptive to the lies of the world. So there's great strengths with, uh, with the church in the reform movement. But, but the weaknesses can be is they start to teach with a Pharisee type of spirit, that their way is the way. What happens also in a reformed uh, doctrine kind of movement is they um, put a high priority on the word of God, but um, worship and the Holy Spirit is very secondary. And so like, uh, I remember going even to like a, a college when I was going to, uh, on my Bible college tour and they... I was a reformed uh, Bible college, I didn't even know it, and I was like, gonna raise my hands, and my buddy's like, don't you raise your hands, you're not allowed to raise your hands here. I was like, but the Bible says you can raise, they're like, no, not here, we, nope, nope, it's, it's emotional. I'm like, like, so you're telling me like, this, this Bible college would like kick David out for worshiping, like, like this is like, but th- this is some streams, and what happens with each stream is, I think, I'll just be honest, I think personality starts to dominate one of these three, instead of actually the word of God shaping all three, and I wanna be shaped by all three, and I, I need you to know something, all, of these, all three of these stretch me in different ways. I have my own bents and my own tendencies. So that, that's the reform movement. The second movement would be the seeker-sensitive, the missional movement. So the seeker-sensitive movement is the church that is the search and rescue church. Bill Hybels in the 1990s um, made this really famous. It was the seeker-sensitive church. He actually went door-to-door when he was planning the church and asked people what they didn't like about church. First problem is don't ask people. Ask God what they don't like about church. Okay? So he knocked on the door, and he, they said, um, we don't like worship. It makes me feel weird. So he didn't start church with worship. He started with like a skit or like an illustration, and then he would preach. The church grew to thousands, 20,000, became super famous. The seeker-sensitive model has now birthed. Other churches were copying it, and um, they started, you know, getting really big throughout. And there are churches still there, are you call seeker-sensitive churches. They're always processing, how do we reach the lost? Now, let me just say this. There are some strengths to the seeker-sensitive church. Luke 15, Jesus said, I'm on a search and rescue mission. If you had a kid, and you were at Disneyland, and your kid went missing, you wouldn't be like, eh, let's go to Space Mountain. You know, da, 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 da. where's Timmy? I don't know. He got lost, but hey, Space Mountain's calling my name. You know, I'm hungry. Let's go get some lunch. Hey, have you seen Timmy? I haven't seen Timmy. Like you wouldn't go all day and not look for Timmy. You would stop everything that you do and you would go search for Timmy. And that's what the Lord's saying. He's like, I'm not here to just do anything. I'm here on a search and rescue mission. So there's a great strength to the seeker sense of movement, but what can happen with the seeker sense of movement? Here are some weaknesses. Uh, one is, um, let me pull it up real quick. Uh, you can start to baby Christians. And when you baby Christians, you get baby Christians. 
And so, so uh, the other part um, of, um, uh, of a secret sense church is the church can become, uh, I would say, so sensitive to culture that they become like culture. Um, can I say real quick, I don't think we need to dumb down scripture or water down the word to reach the next generation. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that we have to make less of the word and raise up other things. No, we raise up the name of Jesus. He will draw all men near. And so there's a weakness. Um, the the, the seeker sensitive church can almost create like what I call like empathy cults where like the empathy is the most important part is how you feel about something. And like, how could we ever say this or do this? We're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Can I tell you real quick? If somebody's feelings is your authority, you're following the wrong authority. And so, so, so there's a seeker sensitive uh, movement. And then last but not least, uh, oh, just give you a heads up. Bill Hybels, the Secret Center Church, uh, after years, 20 plus years of pastor church, they actually did a survey of his church, and he literally said, I failed. I failed my church. Um, we, we, cre- we created shallow services and shallow church, and we made shallow Christians. We should have taught them how to read the word. We should have got them in the word. We should have taught them what worship was. And so there's this whole survey I read it several years ago. Will Creek Community undertook a multiple-year study of the effectiveness of the seeker-friendly services, and they epically failed. Um, I can show you the article if you want. Anyways, uh, he uses the term, we made a mistake. Last church would be the worship church, the Pentecostal church. Pacao, Pentecostal. Uh, where are my Pentecostals at? Woo! Now settle down. Keep your tambourines in your pocket. All right? No chauffeurs. Not yet. Not yet. All right. Um, uh, the charismatic church. Um, this would be um, a church where their main, uh, like, you could say, like, if you walk in a charismatic church, like, the, the, the presence of God, worship would be, like, the primary but the weakness is the secondary becomes the word of God and then like the search and rescue mission of God. And like they'll start like elevating like their experiences, not emotions, their experiences over the truth of God. Well, I experienced this, so this has to also be a part of what God's told me to do. And it's so interesting. Each stream has different ways they talk. Like, you know, like um, Presbyterians say God illuminated something. Baptists will say when they read their Bible, this stood out to me. And then a Pentecost will be like, I have a rhema word for today. You know, because they'll use the word rhema, like this is a, the kairos of today. And so like all of them are saying similar things, but, but the, 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 the Pentecostal movement will we'll, we'll lean towards more chasing after experiences and gauge a great service of an experience instead of actually just honoring God. And so, so um, all of them have great strengths. Uh, can I show real quick? The fastest growing movement right now in all of history of church is the Pentecostal movement. It is exploding right now. Just Google uh, Pentecostal movement, fastest growing movement. It was like article after article after article. It is exploding right now. The other um, eight, eight Protestant uh, denominations uh, that would be, uh, you know, think that the Holy Spirit, uh, they're, they're called cessationists, where they think the Holy Spirit has ceased to exist. Um, they're all plummeting 30% or more. I think I actually have a graph. Uh, this is the um, next one. So these are all the other denominations. You could say Protestant denominations. They're all plummeting right now uh, over the last 20 years. Average is about 30%. But then you have the Pentecostal one right there, and it is growing. Next graph, 51%. And so, uh, so hear me out real quick. We're going to build something great. Mr. Church is going to build something great. Here's a bunch of uh, Legos. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're done. Hey, you made it 45 minutes. You're just like the people in Ezra. You're so amazing. It's like six hours. <laughs> How did, how did you do it? Um, like pat yourself on the back. <laughs> okay, anyways. Um, so uh, these are Legos. Um, and I think uh, a sermon without Christ is a terrible sermon. I love preaching about Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is actually always pointing to Jesus. I hope you know that. All the prophets point to the great prophet. And so we serve a better Nehemiah, a better builder, and his name is Jesus. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, um, he, he's, he's given us a, a, a declaration of what he's about to do with your life and my life until he comes back again. Um, so uh, there's a show called Lego Masters. And Lego Masters, um, they basically give these 
Lego masters. I don't know how you become a Lego master. I don't know how big of a nerd you have to be, but you got to really dive in. Yeah, I see. I use oh, oh, that's mean. Relax, okay. Um, I, I have my nerd out things too, um, but but I don't know how much like you have to love Legos for thirty years. And be like, I have given my life to Legos. You give me a pile, I will create the Mona Lisa. You know. Um, but these people are so good at it uh, that when they give them a pile, they build great things. I'll actually give you a couple pictures of what they could build. Here's a uh, picture of one of the Legos. This is a Lego house. Literally, like, next picture, look at them. They're actually living in it. This is him inside the Lego house. Those are Lego slippers. Okay, then here's the Lego bathroom. I'm not sure if there's real plumbing, but there's a Lego bathroom, walk-in shower. Okay, that's a Lego master, okay? Uh, show me the next one. There is a car. You need a Lego car if you're going to have a Lego house. That's a Lego Volvo, okay? Then the last one, there's a Lego Mona Lisa. I don't know if I put myself in the picture. I don't know if I'd be proud of it. You know what I'm saying? Um, he's like, look how amazing I am. Um, Catch this real quick. I just spent 30 years of my life doing this. Okay, anyways. Um, I, uh, if you gave me these Legos in about 10 minutes, in my own strength, I could build something that would be okay. But what if you took my life and your life and we gave it to the greatest builder, Jesus, and said, would you build the church the way you want to build it, God? Because the reality is, is some of us, we grade Sundays by... I like the way the word was taught today. That's my grade. And some of us are, I liked because I felt like the spirit moved today. That was my grade. Some of us are like, I like today because there were salvations today. How about we allow God to do what he wants to do each Sunday, to do each week. If he wants mass salvations one Sunday, we'll have mass salvations. If he wants the Holy Spirit to move in a way we've never seen, let's let the Holy Spirit move in a way that we've never seen. Let's let miracles happen. I'm not trying to put the brakes on the Holy Spirit in this place. Um, here's what I know. The Holy Spirit illuminates Jesus. Charismatic chaos illuminates people. So I'm not trying to have charismatic chaos, but I am trying to allow Jesus to do what he wants to do in this house. If Jesus wants to teach and just sharpen the saints today, let's let him teach today. Let's let God use you and I and build something really great. You're a piece, I'm a piece, but until you allow yourself to actually be built the way he calls you to build, you're missing out on being the greatest masterpiece of your life. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.